0: available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes, upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com/milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q u i n c e dot com/milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com/milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
1: My husband is... um is from Northern Ireland, and I spent quite a lot of time in Northern Ireland. And a few years ago, I, I wrote a, a, a column in The Guardian, Then I put a version, my version, on an Irish stew. And I got so many nasty re- responses because <laughs> most people said, but how can you change it? The- an Irish stew is just mutton and nothing else, you know, mutton and water. And I said, like, but who wants to eat that?
0: <laughs> Tom Ottolenghi is the author of Sweet, Plenty, and Jerusalem. His latest book, Ottolenghi's Simple, focuses on delivering minimal hassle for maximum joy. Whole roasted vegetables topped with creme fraiche, no-baked cheesecakes, ray dressings, and a new take on salads. But before we chat with you, Tom, it's my interview with Yvette van Boven, author of Homemade Christmas. Yvette, how are you? Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. So before we get to the food, what's the worst holiday party you've ever been to? Because you, you obviously wrote this book based upon experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you must have gone to some really horrible parties. So so what are some of the things that went wrong in this terrible party? Oh, dear. Party? I do have And examples. don't mention names. Don't mention names.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose they're not listening. Uh-huh. But, um, yes, we did have a family dinner uh, once where there was not enough food, for example.
0: Oh, well, that that's kind of a
2: And not killer. enough drink. You know, the people say, oh, is the bottle empty already? And, it, yeah, we are 12 people, so I, yeah you you need you need more than two bottles so that was awful yeah that was awful everybody just shared one chicken and it, it was just Not enough, because uh, it wasn't because they were not generous. It was because the people who were uh, serving the food did not eat that much. So they had no idea how much they would serve for 12 people. It sounds
0: like a Dickens, like a David Copperfield. (laughs) 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 Well, it wasn't like that at all, no. I mean, it wasn't Pickwick. It was something a little uh, meaner, probably. (laughs) So do you believe in a smaller menu? I've, I've always said to people, look, Cook two things well, not yeah. eight things badly. Yeah. So you, you like a small menu?
2: I like a small menu or make a, a big menu, but then ask others to uh, bring or cook at your house and make another uh, a course. So, th- so you can just focus on, uh, let's say, the main course and a dessert or something and let the others bring the starters.
0: What, what is Dutch French toast?
2: That is actually nice. We call it here. The French eat it sweet. We can eat it a savory too. Um, it's uh, all, a stale bread that you would uh, leave in uh, some egg with milk and you would leave it there to steep for a couple of minutes and then you'll bake it, which is quite good. And it's a good way to uh, finish up old bread.
0: <laughs> um, oatmeal pancakes. You take some oats and Throw them in a food processor or blender and use yeah. that as a flour, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And,
0: and, and why? is it make it better pancake with the oats? Or?
2: Um, No, but it makes it more, I think it makes them less fluffy, of course, but it makes them more savory. Something I like better because I think a lot of dishes uh, around Christmas are quite sweet. There's a lot of chocolate and a lot of sweet
0: going on. Uh, pine syrup. Tell, yeah. tell me about pine syrup.
2: Um, that was I, something I've, I thought was quite interesting because I like to uh, use the Christmas tree as an ingredient in your uh, uh, in, in your cocktails. So just <laughs> cut off some branches and let it macerate and steep into some syrup, and use that syrup in any cocktails. I even made Negronis with them. But it's actually really delicious. It's even nice just with water. It's, it's just it's quite nice.
0: Riette is a classic dish. Uh, yeah, you, you want to just explain how people make it. You braise meat, you shred it. I mean, uh, uh, w- yeah. what's the basic recipe?
2: The basic recipe is actually um, you make it from s- s- bits and pieces that you have left over in in meat, especially fatty meat like porks or or, or goose, um, and you would cook it down really slowly, that the fat renders out, and then you would you know mix it. And it w- it will become like a, a, a like a spreadable pate, and and you would add some spices to it just to make it your own. Um, I've made it from rabbit in this, which is a very lean meat, so it's not a real riet, but it's still very nice. It's nice and light, and I add the fat because it doesn't have it, natural fat, so I add your own fat.
0: Makes me feel good. Um, someone's adding fat. I think that's instead of taking it out.
2: No, you have to add fat sometimes. Fat is the best. It's one of the best tastes ever, and it carries a lot of taste also.
0: What is a fruit salami?
2: Oh, a fruit salami is, um, I make it from uh, dried fruits like uh, a fig or prunes or apricots, and mix them up with nuts. And if you chop them up really finely and you would uh, roll them into a piece of parchment paper, you would roll it into mm. a sausage-like shape and then keep it in the fridge. And if you add some, you can add some spices to it to make it Christmasier, like cloves or cinnamon or, or star anise, and uh, it will get that nice Christmassy taste. And it's also really good to slice nice and thin with some uh, cheese.
0: Um, Is the turkey persona non grata uh, in Holland for holidays is just not something that's a centerpiece? It's a goose, it's something else? No, I
2: think uh, turkey and goose are more um, English or uh, Irish. We would actually cook more beef, I would say, or pork. And we have these sets they would put on the table, and I have not put this in my book because I hate it.
0: you sure? you Is that how you really feel about
2: it? <laughs> yes, I really hate it. I really hate it. Okay. We call it gourmet, and it's for Dutch people who don't know how to cook. It's like a small heater. Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite big, actually. You have to put it on the table, and everybody has to sit around it. And everybody gets a little pan, and uh, and you have all the ingredients at the table, and everybody can just cook. Oh, it. I, ha- I don't like that either. That's, I, that's I, I want you to cook. That's it. I think that's his, that's dinner without yeah. love. That's n- nobody. <laughs> no, just just do it yourself, man. And here's the sauce and just pour That'd it over. That'd be a great and,
0: book title, Dinner Without Love. <laughs> that, maybe that'll be your next book. So you get to make three things for Christmas. That's it. Yeah. What are you going to make?
2: I will definitely have... And, and
0: I'm coming over for dinner, by the way. So oh, like, that's so, good. So that's a little caveat. Okay. Here, so what... <laughs> I always invite myself over because nobody invites me. So. Well, so, they so. don't. They <laughs> well, don't. Are they no, scared? No, I don't. But I'm coming over for dinner. You're going to make three things. I'm
2: going to make you three things. Yeah. Okay. So um, I might make you uh, razor clams. Then I will uh, steam them in just a couple of minutes, just very shortly, and I would... Pour over some tarragon butter, mm-hmm. and uh, as a main course, um, we are not having a meat dish, but well, we will have a vegetable dish, and it's oxheart cabbage, and I char it on a, in a big casserole, and then uh, baste it with butter and a fish sauce, which is actually really good. Hmm. Everything gets balanced out, and all these, it's the sweetness of the cabbage and the saltiness of the f- fish sauce and the. Fattiness and the richness of the
0: butter—it's
2: perfect. What
0: is ox heart? cabbage,
2: ox heart cabbage is a, a cabbage that it's a white cabbage or light green, and it's a bit pointy.
0: So I could use Napa cabbage maybe? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: You could use that. That's a perfect one. And what's
0: my third course?
2: And your third course is, um, as you are coming over to me, and I hope it's in Amsterdam, I will give you a tasting of all our Dutch cheeses. Mm. Well, not all of them, but I will highlight some really good ones. You'll be
0: surprised. So we're going to have a lot of time to talk and drink.
2: Lovely, wouldn't that be nice? It's the
0: perfect menu, it's simple, so we can do all the fun stuff. Yeah,
2: okay, (laughs) yeah, but you have to do it simple and then uh, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, and pour some good wine.
0: Yvette, thank you so much for being here on Milk Street. It was a pleasure, thank you. That was Yvette van Boven. Her new book is called Homemade Christmas. Milk Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe and listen whenever you want. New shows go up every Friday on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Now it's time to answer your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television.
3: Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line?
4: My name is Trudy. How are you?
3: I'm good. What is your question today?
4: Well, I have a German recipe. It's called Bienenstich. And I have tried forever to make it. I can get the topping. I can get the filling. But the actual cake-like batter thing, it just eludes me. And uh, most of them on the Internet call for a yeast dough.
0: Yeah. Let's go back. This bean stitch, could you just describe when it's finished what it looks like and what the components are? Because I'm not familiar with it.
4: Okay. The filling is made of whipped cream and vanilla pudding.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And then the topping is butter, sugar, almonds, cinnamon, vanilla, and heavy cream. And you pour that on top of the batter before it's baked. And it makes this incredible Crunchy topping.
0: How does the filling get into the into,
3: into the, the cake? Dough, into the cake. How yeah. does that
6: work?
4: You bake the cake with the topping. Uh huh. And then you slice the cake. I um, see. Okay. Across, gotcha. Gotcha. And, and put then the you filling. Fill in. It, and Got then it. you let Got it sit it. in the fridge, preferably overnight.
0: Is this baked in a springform pan of some kind or a cake pan? Um, I
4: usually do it in a nine by twelve pan. Okay.
0: So the cake itself, ideally, what should the texture of the cake be?
4: It's like a cake, but a cake that is heavy enough in texture-wise to keep that topping on the top while it's baking. Mm -hmm. And like I said, most of the recipes on the Internet call for a yeast dough, and the yeast dough is just too dry. Now, my uncle was a baker in Germany, and he said the flour over here is different.
0: No, I mean, the only difference would be the absorption of liquid might be different because the amount of gluten in the flour would be different. But that could make but, that could make a difference. But that you could make it, for a dry cake. But you could just adjust by adding a little more liquid. You know, the Smitten Kitchen, I think, at one time did this recipe, so you might uh, want to go check that out.
3: I think so. I mean, it's hard to say how to change the proportions, but I think that the problem with the flour might be really the problem because... Uh, different gluten flours absorb different amounts of liquid. And so if this dough is a little dry, it might be that maybe you needed to cut back a little bit on the flour or maybe you needed to up the fat content or the eggs, which also have some fat content.
0: So you make a yeast dough, you let it rise, goes down, you put it in the 9 by 12 you let it rise a second time, put the topping on and bake it, is that right?
4: Yes, but it comes out too dry. And it doesn't matter how long the cake with the filling stays in the refrigerator. It can be in there two days, and it's still like, is just like too dry.
3: Another thought I had is if they usually made it round, you know, then maybe what it is is you're spreading out the batter too thin, you know, and so it dries out in baking.
0: You know what? We, I've never made this, but go to Smitten Kitchen. I think she did this recipe a few years ago. Uh, okay. And I think she could probably solve your problem. Yeah.
4: Okay, well, I will certainly give it a try. But,
0: boy, I, I'm going to go to Smitten Kitchen this, and make it. it a, sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah, it sure
4: does. It, is, it like, is absolutely wonderful.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. All three of us are going to go to smittenkitchen.com, get the okay. recipe, and bake it for the
4: holidays, right?
3: Yes, okay. sounds like a plan. Trudy, thank okay. you so much for calling. A pleasure. Yes, yeah. yes.
4: Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your input. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Nathan from Columbus, Ohio.
3: Hi, Nathan from Columbus. How can we help you today?
5: So I recently uh, inherited my grandmother's Guardian Service uh, waterless aluminum roaster, and she used it for 50 years, and it's just an absolute mint condition. And so I have two questions about it. First, I'm scared to use it because then I'll have to clean it. So how do I clean it and maintain it so I can pass it on to my kids? And then second, is there a secret to cooking in waterless aluminum? versus any other type of roasting pan. Wow. Well,
0: there's a company, Kuhn Recon, in uh, Switzerland, I think, who makes this cookware. I think they pioneered this. And essentially what happens is a vacuum is created, and so there's no moisture loss, and that's how it works. My understanding is I've seen some of this cookware. It's not super heavy.
3: Yeah. Do you know if yours is lined at all, or is it straight aluminum?
5: I believe it's straight aluminum. Yeah. from the 50s and the whole thing, yeah. Yeah.
3: The one thing is if it's unlined aluminum, it can react with acid and milk and, you know, change the color of some foods. That's the okay. only downside. Aluminum is a great conductor of heat after copper. I mean, it's way down, but it's the second best. So that's good. In terms of cleaning it, I don't know. Chris, do you know?
0: It can get that discoloration, yeah. you know, which is not, it's not food stuck to it. It just discolors over time, and you get that sort of grayish Right. color to it, which yeah. I think is what you're talking about. I use Barkeeper's Friend for cleaning. Sometimes I'll put water in a pot and put it back on the stove and then scrub it. Sometimes that works, but I can't get rid of that grayish color. Okay.
3: You know, I will say that this is for moist cooking. You're not going to get crispy chicken or anything cooking in this item because it's covered cooking, correct?
5: Right, yeah. Yeah. and it seemed like that whenever I looked up how to use it online. Most of the cooking was fairly colorless.
3: Yes, it has to be because there's no air circulating there. So it's probably very moist, yummy food, but with no crispy skin,
0: which is fine. It's sort of like using a pressure cooker. It's its own thing, so you have to get good at it and know what it's good for. In my kitchen, I tend to stick with the stupid pots, the ones that, that don't have a specific technique to them. Or you could find a lovely space on your shelf, and it could be... It could be part Very of your much. family. Yeah, yeah, it could be part of, you know, heirloom. the old cookbooks. It's heirloom. Yeah. It's like an heirloom tomato. Well, I've thought about that. That might be your best bet. So You don't oh, have to worry about destroying right. it, but it's still in pristine condition. Right. And just buy a Dutch oven. <laughs> thanks,
3: thanks, <laughs> Nathan. Anyway, thanks, Nathan. Thanks, thanks. Thanks for calling.
5: Thank you.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or a failure, call us at 855-426-9843. That's eight five five four two six nine eight four three. 855-426-9843 or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hi, this is Peter Schindler.
0: How are you? I'm great,
7: thank you. and really quite tickled to talk to you. I've admired your work. Long time. Well, we'll see how you feel <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the <laughs> When done <call. he's> <laughs> with you. But
0: things are starting out well anyway. Yeah. So how can we help you?
7: Well, um, I was admiring this recipe for the sticky toffee pudding. Mm-hmm. I am... Someone who makes steamed puddings quite a lot, I'm wondering if I need to make any adjustments to the recipe in order to do it that way.
0: Uh, Actually, I made this recipe steamed last Thanksgiving. Oh, you did? Because my Um, oven died right at an inopportune moment. And so I did do it. Um, I put a little cooling rack at the bottom of a large pot and put some water in it, and I steamed it, and I covered it with parchment paper and string, et cetera, and it worked great. How long did you steam it for? hour and a half or something yeah. like that. But it cooked fine. So, Now, are you going to do this in a bun pan or in a actual...
7: No, I have one of those Edgar steaming basin oh. things with a nice aluminum lid and a cube in the center and so on. Yeah,
0: so it's got a top to it. Yeah. Yeah, that would work fine.
3: Can I ask a question of the two of you, since you're experts at steaming? Does it come out more moist then from steaming? Is that the point of steaming?
0: I think it does, yeah, but it's a more gentle consistence around heat, so I like the way it bakes, but I think, yes, I would say it's somewhat more moist, yes.
6: Okay. Huh. Yeah. I
7: have a particular fondness for the English Christmas pudding thing, and um, uses a fair bit of Guinness in it, and I like the way it cooks the fruit. It doesn't mush them up. They stay individual but very moist and succulent. So I cre- agree with Chris.
0: Okay. Nice I think to hear. we should bring back, well, steaming, you know, people didn't have ovens, right? I mean, most right. people couldn't afford so an So this oven. is
3: how they'd approximate. There's
0: a baker in town that would do your baking. So this is how you cooked over coals or yeah. over a stovetop. It's a great way to cook. Yeah, you know, It's very simple. My
3: grandmother used to make one every Christmas and then put a ton of alcohol on it and then make <laughs> hard sauce.
7: The lady who taught me to do Christmas puddings, made them in January and kept them in her yeah. very cool cellar and soaked it with an ounce of brandy every month.
3: Well, why not? Yeah.
0: An ounce of brandy for the pudding, an ounce of brandy for, for the you. cook. yeah. That's pretty good. Well, that's when aging really does help, the yeah. Christmas oh. pudding. No, yeah. they're delicious. I think mm-hmm. people should bring those. Back.
3: Yeah, I think you should do that in Milk Street. And
0: they're not fruitcake, okay? No, no, no. Fruitcake. We
3: have to make that quite clear. <laughs> it's not fruit. Not fruitcake.
0: I used to make a chocolate steam pudding.
3: I see this oh, in yeah. a future yeah. magazine. And
0: i uh, It was just delicious.
3: Delicious, yeah. yeah.
0: I want to do it. Yeah, you can certainly do it. Go right ahead.
3: All right, Peter. Thank you. Yay. Thank
0: you so much. Pleasure. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with chef and author Yotam Ottolenghi. Right after the break. <laughs>
6: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
3: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company,
4: Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. When I picked up my first Yotam Ottolenghi cookbook, Plenty, it transformed my cooking forever. He taught me the magic of spices, how to rethink vegetables, and the fundamentals of contrast in texture and taste. His new book, Autolengi Simple, extracts the essence of his cooking philosophy, but with simpler recipes. Yo, Tom, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, I love your new book, Simple, and we'll get to that in a moment um, we haven't spent much time talking about you, so we're going to talk about you for a while. So you grew up in Jerusalem. You had Italian grandparents in Florence, is that right?
1: Yeah, well, they came from Florence. They, they immigrated to Israel, then Palestine, just before the Second World War.
0: So did you go to Florence what, as a kid?
1: Yeah, so when when I was growing up, they still kept a house there, so we would go there occasionally on summer holidays uh, and I have very fond memories of going to to Florence and spending time both in the city and outside where they where they had the house.
0: Uh, you served in the Is- Israel Defense Forces Intelligence. So what what was that like, if you can say,
1: <laughs> if you can talk about uh, it? I don't think I can say much. I mean, I we had I I had an office job, uh, which was quite good for someone who was just generally terrified of anything that involves. Guns and all the rest, so I, <laughs> I I, was tucked away in an office, which suited me very well.
0: Then you go to get a master's degree on, if I'm getting this right the ontological status of the photographic image and aesthetic and analytic philosophy. Is that, did I read that right? <laughs> yeah,
1: you read it right. I remember, I remember very little out of this. I can, I can probably tell you one or two things about it, but I did study that, uh, you know, philosophy and comparative literature, and my, my dissertation was about imagery and photographs and their relation to the real world, so... Hmm in which way a photograph is a representation of the world or a natural object.
0: That actually sounds fairly relevant to today. So you, you end up working for one of the big newspapers there. You move mm-hmm. to the UK in the late 90s, and you end up at Le Cordon Bleu. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people from the newspaper business end up uh, in the food business. Is, is there some reason for that, or that was just completely random?
1: Well, you know, I I don't know if there's a direct connection, but I know that a lot of people that work in, I used, I worked at the news desk and I was processing the news as it arrived and then putting it together into the page for, for next morning's edition. And the newsroom was a high octane, high adrenaline, lots of nicotine at the time kind of environment. And it is a little bit like service in a kitchen. There's a lot of pressure for a very short amount of time, and then all of a sudden, it's finished. The moment the newspaper goes to print, you're done. And I remember the, having a very similar experience when I started doing service in restaurant at the end of the shift, where you are completely hyper. You know, you've just had uh, been on an adrenaline rush for a few hours. And wanting to go to bed, but it's it's not going to happen, you know. So it's that kind of intensity is actually quite similar.
0: So here's a question about growing up in Israel. This was all the Levant, greater Syria at one time, right? Mm-hmm. People moved around a lot. So yeah. if you lived in Syria, you, you know, you might go to Lebanon or you might whatever. So a lot of these dishes in that entire region are quite similar, although they're very different region to region did you notice that? Did you did you experience similar dishes from different people in different places as you grew up, or was it you just had the one version that uh, you're used to?
1: No, absolutely the, the, the former. So when I was growing up in Jerusalem, there was an incredible diversity of cuisines around. There were lots of recently arrived Jewish communities from all over the world, and there were the local Palestinians. And You would find, especially with Jews coming from North Africa and the Middle East, you'd find incredible similar versions to traditional Palestinian dishes with different names and with slightly different variations. So in the book Jerusalem, Sami and I give a lot of examples. One of them is kubeh, or kibbeh, which Mm -hmm. is um, the Syrian version, is uh, bulgur wheat paste, uh, which is stuffed with a lamb and pine nut filling, And then deep fried. So the bulgur kind of develops a skin in which the the meat is encased. And it's a very popular dish in the whole Levant. And, you know, Palestinians love it, Syrians, Lebanese, Jordanians. But when you move a little bit further east to Iraq and Kurdistan, you find... Similar versions of this dish, but sometimes the bulgur is substituted with rice. Sometimes instead of deep fried, it is poached in a soup. So something which looks really similar in one culture has got a and even has the same name, has a widely different variation in in a different culture. Hmm. So that throughout my childhood and in different parts of the Middle East, you'd find those variations uh, in abundance. So
0: when someone waves the flag of authenticity at you you kind of smile because you know a dish has got 500 different versions depending on who's cooking it
1: I take care not to smile because it's a very sensitive subject <laughs> <Okay>. uh, inside <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it's very very difficult it all it, it's all uh, this is a very hot topic you know right. cultural appropriation right. what belongs to whom and what's the right version and I try not to be too um, you know not to brush it off too easily because for many people this is extremely important right. because it symbolizes you know struggle or difficulty or cultural uh, independence all sorts of things so it's very it's it's you know for someone who lives in a relatively affluent culture food is a luxury in other culture it's a mean of of identifying yourself and you know placing yourself in the world, on a map of the world in a particular way. And this is true all over the world. So I try not to be too sensitive when it comes to these subjects. And I try to say to people, you know, you should really be a little bit more lighthearted about it. But really, you need to judge on a case-by-case basis. I mean, for some people it it is really, really important. So you need to be a little bit careful. But generally speaking, I I like to look at it a bit lightheartedly. And I'll give you an example. I have a really good example. My my husband is... um, is from Northern Ireland. And I spent quite a lot of time in Northern Ireland. And a few years ago, I I wrote a a column in The Guardian about Irish food or my take on Irish food. And I put a version, my version, on an Irish stew. And I got so many nasty responses (laughs) because I added to adulterate the... So most people said but how can you change their irish stew is just mutton and nothing else you know mutton and water and i said like but who wants to eat that <laughs> so you know i i, I added i went over you know, well <laughs> <laughs> i added a bit of orange zest and some parsley and a few more interesting vegetables but the funny thing is that the people that were enraged were not irish they were they were english so, you know, in, on some occasions you can laugh about it, and that was a really great opportunity to laugh because what was at stake was really nothing. But uh, so, like I said, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis.
0: So uh, let, me do, let me do something. I went through your book very carefully. Actually, you know, I cooked Sunday, uh, and this mm-hmm. is, I thought this was brilliant and simple. You had a cherry tomato sauce for pasta, right? Yeah. And I never thought of this. You took five tablespoons of oil, a little less than a cup of water, and you cooked those cherry tomatoes for an hour. And the water allowed you to cook with, it. A- with, yeah. yeah. With some chilies. With some chilies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and it was unbelievable. Uh, and then you threw in a couple handfuls, as, as Otto Lenge books do, <laughs> of, of basil or whatever. But mm-hmm. the, the long cooking, and I had pretty crummy supermarket cherry tomatoes. It yeah. was really good. It, it was absolutely fabulous. Anyway. So th- that was a a concept to take away. But let me – let's go through I, – I made a yeah. list of things. You know, ideas that you use in cooking that maybe other people, uh, at least this side of the Atlantic, have thought of. Uh, roasting a whole vegetable. You know, you like yeah. it's very common, as you know, to do uh, eggplant, for example. But could you just talk about roasting an entire vegetable in one piece?
1: Yeah, so I find that one of the most, you know – the easiest way in the kitchen so if i have a little bit of time which not it's not ideal if you want to put something on a table within 25 minutes but if i have a little bit of time i take a whole vegetable and it could be anything from a cabbage to a cauliflower to a, a rutabaga or a celery root and i you know i drizzle them with oil and put lots of really good salt. And I either co- cover them with, with foil individually or wrap them together or wrap them in a tray and just leave them there for a good one or two hours or three hours. It depends on the vegetable. And that's actually almost all the cooking you need to do. I mean, after that, you could do a few other things. You can make a salsa or a sauce to go with. You can serve it with some creme fraiche and uh, and a drizzle of, you know, lemon or something along line, that line. But but it is really as simple as that, and and what happens is that with a long cooking, everything kind of the sugar starts to make to give you caramelization, and the and the and the vegetable just tastes more and more of its own self. Right. If if you see what I mean, and everybody, I mean, many people have discovered this recently with a cauliflower. That, and I've got a recipe in the book as well. If you put in a in a in a pot of water and boil it for three minutes, and then roast it, leaves and everything for a good hour after that with lots of olive oil, you get the most, the sweetest, most delicious cauliflower that really Mm. doesn't need anything else apart from that.
0: You mentioned drizzles, and that's, you know, in southern India they use tarka, which is, as you know, flavored ghee or oil with spices. And you do that very often in your book, Simple. So the idea of drizzling something flavorful at the end before serving, you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, because if if you want to give yourself an easy life and not work too much on building up flavors over a long time or with too many ingredients, Uh, I do what they do a lot in Turkish cooking, and that is take a little bit of butter or oil and put some flaked chilies. I like erfa chilies, but any Mm -hmm. kind of flaked chili does the work. And the moment that you throw the chilies in, the butter or the oil turns a really deep, beautiful red color and starts to flavor the oil or the butter and that spooned over something from vegetables to meaty stew to uh, to eggs just really transforms the dish and it's a simple trick then it has a real transformative effect i mean you can also drizzle a, a bit of lemon juice into that bubbling butter uh, and then you've got heat you've got uh, from the chilies you've got the acidity from the lemon juice and you've got the uh, bubbling, beautiful fat over it. And that just coats whatever you need to coat. And you don't need much else, really. Could you give
7: our
0: listeners a 15-second commercial for Urfa pepper?
1: Yeah. So Urfa peppers or chilies are essentially a variety from Turkey. And they're dried in the sun with a bit of salt and then blitzed up into flakes. And it's, they're extremely dark. They taste smoky, and they're not very spicy, so they're really beautiful when sprinkled over anything with a light color, like an yogurt or or eggs. So they're nice, like bright dark jewels, and they're really, really beautifully smoky. So you know, from the Mexican side, you'd you'd find ancho uh, or cascabal chilies. It's kind of the the Middle Eastern equivalent to those Mexican flavors,
0: and a little chocolatey too. It has sort of a yes, yeah.
1: it's got it's got a really nice sweetness and depth of like a chocolatey. Uh, flavor or licorice flavor.
0: Uh, you you taught me that salads are not green lettuce with a dressing. <laughs> um, you have a slightly more <laughs> uh, global view of it. So so, w- how do you think about a salad? Because I know you do all sorts of great things, but but you think yeah. about them differently.
1: I think for me, a salad is is any dish that is made out of vegetables that are served. Cold or at room temperature, and so in my cafes and restaurants, I serve big platters of roasted vegetables or fresh red vegetables, and I dress them lightly with pastes and salsas and and different dressings. And for me, that is essentially a salad, something that you eat at room temperature and is vegetable based. It doesn't need to be a side to anything. So I mean, traditionally in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, a salad would be served next to something you know more substantial. Uh, but really, it really doesn't need to be the case. You can take a whole lot of wonderful vegetables and cook them and dress them nicely, and you have a whole loads of salads that just make up a meal. You don't need really anything else apart from that.
0: You know, we're on the verge now in the States of sort of a spice revolution, as you well know, um, partially due to you. So let's take five spices the typical household may not have on hand. What, what should they buy and Why?
1: So I divide spices into, it's a very crude differentiation, but to sweet and, and savory. So for on the sweet side, you'd find things like, um, like cinnamon and allspice and nutmeg. Uh, so from that department, I really, really love star anise. Uh, star anise is used a lot in Asian cooking and Southeast Asian cooking. And you can buy it as, they look like beautiful stars, but you can also grind it into a powder or buy it as powder. That's a really great, um, great spice to have. And another one from the aniseed f- department is either fennel seeds or aniseed. You know, they're quite similar in flavor. And we are all familiar with aniseedic flavors from tarragon, from basil, from chervil. So if you take those herbs and mix them together with fennel seeds or with aniseed, you get another layer of those aniseed flavors, which are really great with both uh, vegetables and, and, and meat and fish. Then I really like moving from the sweet to the more savory. Another sweet-ish is cardamom. Gr- ground cardamoms are the most wonderful things. And for both desserts and added to, I've got a recipe in this book for uh, soba noodle salads with avocado and lots of cilantro, lots of onion. And I add some ground cardamom to it. And it, with the addition of a squeeze of lime, mm-hmm. it's like heaven. Really, really good.
0: Um, sumac roasted strawberries. Talk about that.
1: Mm, delicious. So you know sumac is such a great ingredient because it's dry. It sits there. It has quite a long shelf life, but it brings a lot of wonderful acidity and a great and great color.
0: You, you want to explain what it is? Just explain what it is.
1: Sumac are yeah are the crushed dried berries of a tree that grows. It actually grows all over the world, but it's mostly found now in in the Middle East and 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 Iran. And it is it, it's it got a really sharp, sharp flavor. It's great with meat, but it's also wonderful added to salad dressing and to roasted vegetables. So um, the, what you were referring to is a, a dish that I have, a dessert that I have in the book, where you take strawberries and you roast them with sumac. So the redness is even more amplified by the redness of the sumac, and the acidity is heightened by the sharpness of the sumac. And that's served with drained yogurt. So you take really rich yogurt and get those roasted strawberries with a bit of mint. And it's a it's a really kind of straightforward dessert that is just really wonderful.
0: As you're cooking, or the way you like to cook, let's assume you're not publishing books, you're not doing restaurants or delis. You're just home, and you're cooking with family. Mm. How do you cook now versus 20 years ago? I assume it's different.
1: Yeah, it's true. I've got young children, and it does affect the way you cook. Quite dramatically, so it explains a bit about this book and how it came to be, and that is that I think, as someone who's turning fifty this year, I try to probably impress a bit less with my food and think a bit more about the function and and how it functions in in people's lives. And when I come home from work, I don't always make dinner. Mostly, it's Carl, my husband, who makes dinner. But if I do need to make dinner. I I would make something that I know the kids will definitely eat and won't be thrown away. I know that it's I make something that can be done within 30 minutes and doesn't involve a whole lot of washing up. Afterwards, I become very pragmatic about it. It still needs to be delicious and special. So I make something like, uh, like a majadra, which is a very simple Middle Eastern dish of rice and lentils with some fried onion in it, and it's got sweet spices, uh, but not much else. And the kids love it. It's not fireworks, but it's really, really good. It's really delicious. And when you put a dollop of good yogurt on it, you've got a wonderful meal. And, you know, I said my kids are not especially picky. This is a dish that I have any day, and I can easily make within half an hour. But the trick is the fried onion. I mean, it's not going to be as good if you don't add some fried onion to it. Yotam, thank you
0: so much. All, all the best. I know your, your new book, Simple, is doing very well, uh, well-deserved, and
1: we'll catch thank up you with you uh, next year. Thank you. That
0: was chef and author Yotam Otolenghi. His new book is entitled, Otolenghi's Simple, A Cookbook. You know, spices have been around since at least the time of the pharaohs, used as preservatives and also for health. The king of Babylon grew 64 different herbs in the royal garden. That was 700 B.C. At the same time, spices were incredibly popular in India and then later in Greece and Rome. In medieval Europe, spices were expensive. A pound of saffron cost as much as a horse. And then as prices fell, so did their use. Post-revolution French cooking was a spice-free zone. Well, today, spices are back in favor. Maybe someday we'll know as much about them as the king of Babylon almost 3,000 years ago. time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Taiwanese beef noodle soup. Catherine, how are you?
8: I'm great, thanks. How are you?
0: You know, when I went to Taipei not too long ago, I spent half a day with Zhuang Bao Hua. She is a culinary teacher, very well known. She's taught over 70,000 students. And uh, she has a, a, a very simple school. It's on the second floor of a sort of nondescript commercial building. And we made a couple of recipes. One was beef noodle soup. Now, it takes a couple hours. She uses beef bones, she uses beef suet, she uses maybe 20 different spices and ingredients, uh, wok, and she uses also a big pot, Uh, and it was great. But obviously a lot of work to transport it and uh, make it for the American home cook. So how did we take that recipe and transform it here at Milk Street?
8: Well, Chris, we had our work cut out for us. So what we decided to do is just start by sauteing your aromatics, so your ginger, your garlic, some spices like star anise, That kind of builds the flavor base, and then we didn't make homemade stock, and we didn't use store-bought stock. We just simmered beef shanks, which was the cut that we found produced really tender meat and a really flavorful stock. Uh, We simmered that, and that makes the base, and then you just shred the meat, add it back into the broth uh, with some store-bought wheat noodles. You're looking for a fresh noodle, any sort of Asian-style fresh wheat noodle, and then we finished it with some greens. So Chris, once you add the beef shanks, you just want to keep it at a simmer, make sure it's not boiling too aggressively, but then you can just kind of go about your day. It's gonna hang out for about two hours before you shred the meat and add it back into the pot with the noodles and the greens.
0: So it takes about the same amount of time that it it took in Taipei, uh, but with about half as many ingredients.
8: Yes, and I think it's important to say, Chris, what an incredibly flavorful dish this is. Uh, There's a little bit of a longer ingredient list, but the actual work is very minimal and it's extremely flavorful and packed with umami.
0: Meat, broth, noodles, and greens. I mean, that's why it's the national dish of Taiwan. It was like the perfect combination. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris.
8: You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt demystifies the science of vinaigrettes. We'll be right back.
3: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here's a tip from Chef Alon Shaya, also author of the cookbook Shaya, to add flavor quickly and easily to almost any dish. It's an herb-flavored salt. One part kosher salt to one part herb Grind them together in the food processor, store the mix in a sealed container in the freezer, where the flavor actually intensifies over time. Now, here are three recipes. Equal parts sage and rosemary and two parts parsley. Or you can have equal parts marjoram and rosemary in just a little bit of thyme, And finally, you can have 50% cilantro, 50% parsley, and then add in half of a serrano chili. For more tips and ideas, please go to 177 Milk Street. Next up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt illuminates another kitchen mystery. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? You know, over the years, we've worked together and then been in the same industry for quite a few years now, not working together. But you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things. But vinaigrettes is one of those topics that, you know, I argue with everybody about vinaigrettes. So let's have <laughs> a vinaigrette argument. So okay. you, I know, have done quite a lot of work on this. So why don't you start out with what you know and believe about vinaigrettes.
9: (laughs) Okay, we can start by defining a vinaigrette. A vinaigrette is essentially just a salad dressing that's composed of an acidic element, so usually vinegar or citrus juice, combined with oil. Like, those are the two basic parts of a vinaigrette, usually olive oil. To that, you can add other flavorings, um, shallots, garlic, Black pepper, salt are very common herbs. And then you usually also include an emulsifier of some kind, which can also double as a flavoring. So generally, like with a very classic French vinaigrette, that's going to be mustard. So Dijon mustard, shallots, a little vinegar, and some olive oil. That's like your basic French vinaigrette. Now... Where things get complicated is the technique involved. So you could just take all those ingredients and separately dump them on your salad greens in a bowl and toss it all together. And I know in a lot of French bistros, a lot of French cafes, um, they will do this. They'll form it table side, have all the ingredients separate, um, toss it very well, serve it to you immediately. The problem with this method, though, and maybe when you're in a small French cafe um, where you've probably had a lot of wine and you're in a good mood and you and you like seeing this tableside service, and most importantly, you're eating the salad basically immediately after it's dressed. They put it on your plate. You start eating it because of that tableside service. So. Your salad's going to be fine. But if you were to let that salad to sit, um, made with a very sort of loose vinaigrette where all the ingredients are added separately, um, what you'll find with time is that the vinegar element um, or the citrus element, any sort of water-based liquid, which vinegar and citrus juice are, they're essentially water um, with some acid, any kind of water-based liquid is going to eventually drain off the leaves and kind of puddle at the bottom of your plate. If you ever walk outside um, after it rains and look at the way water pools on leaves, you'll see that leaves of all kinds are made to shed water. The water doesn't get absorbed. Water doesn't make them wilt, anything like that. It's because leaves have this sort of um, oil-based sort of waxy cuticle on them that it sheds off water, but it is very good at absorbing oil. So when you make a vinaigrette, your oil will actually get absorbed by the leaves. And if you've seen a salad starting to wilt, it's the oil in there that's causing it to to wilt. Yeah, it's not the acid, not the water. You can take a bucket of vinegar, throw salad greens in there and let it sit for half an hour, drain them off, and they'll be fresh. Do the same thing with a bucket of oil and they'll be completely wilted. When you're emulsifying, what you're doing is you're essentially taking two things that don't mix very well together, so water and oil in this case, and dispersing them so finely that they form a stable mixture that doesn't break off into a separate water phase and a separate oil phase. And you do that, you know, with vigorous whisking, slowly drizzling in the oil while you're whisking vigorously, helps the emulsion. Um, You can do it with a blender. You can do it with um, a food processor or a hand blender if you'd like to get a stronger emulsion. But, you know, just whisking or shaking in a jar will form a strong enough emulsion that when you then subsequently toss your greens with it it prevents the acid from, first of all, dripping off the leaves and collecting in the bottom of the bowl or on the bottom of the plate. And more importantly, what it does is it dilutes that oil so that it doesn't break down the lettuce leaves quite as fast. So if you're eating your salad immediately and you're just throwing it on the plate, going to eat it, a loose vinaigrette probably works fine. But if you have a green salad and your goal is to put it on the table and have, you know. It's family style. You have six to eight people there. Maybe they're going to eat it right now. Maybe they're going to eat it in 15 minutes. In those cases, I very strongly recommend emulsifying the dressing first um, because it'll help your salad, first of all, taste better and also stay fresher on the table for longer.
0: Let's talk about technique. Jacques Pepin was told me he just used an old mustard jar, which had a little bit of mustard left in it. He would use that so it would emulsify and you didn't have to use a whisk. So ever since Mm -hmm. then, I just use a jar. I I think you do too, right?
9: Yeah. I mean, so I have a little like a salad dressing mixer that I I think OXO makes it, but it has like a little flip top and it's essentially a jar with measured sides. And I find it useful because you don't really have to use any measuring spoons or tablespoons or anything like that. You can just fill your ingredients to the line. Another thing I do is I I have a collection of little plastic squeeze bottles that I've used a Sharpie to draw lines on the side um, that are essentially sort of Bottles with built-in recipes for various vinaigrettes, and so you know, there's a little line on the jar. It'll say one teaspoon of mustard, and then there'll be a line to where to fill the vinegar, and then another line on where to fill the oil. You know, basic ratio is like three to one oil to vinegar, maybe two to one oil to vinegar. So you just fill it up to those lines, add whatever seasonings are listed, and then put your finger over the top and shake it up right before using. And for most purposes, shaking is enough to emulsify a dressing. Certainly for most home purposes.
0: So one last point. Okay, now I yield. <laughs> I, I'll do an emulsion. We can both be right. A little bit we can of mustard. Both be right. But the point, the unique point here was that oil is what penetrates the leaves and makes it wilt, which is a good point. So the other thing is, I think most vinaigrettes are incredibly acidic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, I use very low acid vinegars, under 5%, like a rice wine vinegar mm-hmm. or a white ball. Sandwich. Right. Do you find that these 7 or 8% typical of harsh vinegars, I just don't like them in vinaigrettes.
9: Uh, I mean, it really depends what I'm in the mood for. But, you know, I do make a number of vinaigrettes at home where I cut the vinegar with another water-based liquid. One recipe um, I picked up actually from Ken Oranger when I worked at Clio in Boston is this soy vinaigrette where essentially you substitute about a quarter of the vinegar with soy sauce. You dress your greens with it and it doesn't taste like soy sauce. But it adds, you know, that sort of savoriness to it. Another great technique is using dashi. So like a Japanese stock, you know, you can make a homemade dashi or you can use a little powdered granules, which I think work fine for some applications. Um, But replacing some of the acid with dashi, you know, or even just plain water, you can cut um, your acid with a little bit of water if you find it too vinegary. So that comes down to personal preference. So the nice thing about understanding the basics of a technique of vinaigrette, understanding the ratio of water to oil and how to emulsify it, is that you can change up any of those ingredients any way you want as long as the ratio is the same. So you can mix out different oils. You can use lemon juice. You can use vinegar. You can cut it with water. And as long as the ratios are the same, um, your vinaigrette is going to emulsify and is going to dress well.
0: So Kenji Lopez-Elt, one. Christopher Kimball, zero. (laughs) (laughs) The emulsion is there because the oil will destroy the leaves. The vinegar will roll off like it does in a rain. And a mustard jar or any simple jar will do the trick. Kenji. Thank you. Thank you. You've changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thanks. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats, also author of The Food Lab. On today's show, we had the two extremes of the food world. Kenji discussed the science of salad dressings, and Yvette van Boven cooked up a storm for the holidays. One is a world of gluten and amino acids. The other revels in the rewards of entertaining. One is about mastering the art, the other is about the joy of cooking. So next time, I'll invite both Yvette and Kenji over for dinner and put them next to each other to see what happens. Maybe that's the most scientific way to find out which approach is best. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always find Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head on over to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, or order our new book, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening.
8: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer Melissa Baldino, senior audio editor Melissa Allison, producer Annie Sinzaba, associate producer Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Cindy Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Fredell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by
3: PRX.